I'll have you turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 14. You have Bibles, and if there's someone here that is not acquainted with the Bible very much, I'm going to be giving the, just the page number so that you don't have to worry or look like you don't know the Bible. So it's page 995. This is from John chapter 14. And we're studying together the sanctuary. We're going to be studying the sanctuary together for several days and more. And then I want to move into some other stuff that is going to be really interesting. Like the mark of the beast and stuff like that. Anyway, did you notice our title this evening? I have it on good authority that it's a cute title. Well, it's only a cute title if you can relate the nursery rhyme to the, the spiritual significance of it. Do you catch it? I hope you do. Anyway, I'm not going to take the time. Um, if you don't catch it, you'll have to ask me about it later. Now, this, of course, is uh, an American nursery rhyme. I, you've heard it a long time, all your life, I'm sure. A girl by the name of Mary Sawyer owned a pet lamb. And her brother decided one time that he would try to encourage his sister to take the pet lamb to school one day. Well, she did take the, the pet lamb to school that day, or at least for once. And naturally, it caused a stir. Now, there was a young man there by the name of John Ralston, and he was quite amused by the stir that this was causing. And the very next day, he came on horseback across the fields, and he handed Mary a little note with three stanzas of Mary had a little lamb. Later, a lady by the name of Sarah Joseph, uh, Joseph, Joseph, I can't even say it, Josepha, Sarah Josepha Hale finished the entire poem, and today we have a poem with eight stanzas. Now, I've never heard Mary had a little lamb in eight stanzas. Have you? But apparently it has eight stanzas. That's what it says. Mary had a little lamb whose fleece was white as snow. I know the first line pretty good. Yeah. Pure, white, innocent, without spot or wrinkle, perfect, without sin. And everywhere that Mary went, the lamb was sure to go. How sweet, how catchy, how cuddly, how fuzzy, all of that. But in the gospel story, unlike the rhyme, Mary is the one that follows the lamb. The lamb doesn't follow Mary. You get that, don't you? And do you know, so should we. He's worth following. He really, really is. And so we're doing a study on the plan of salvation as illustrated in the sanctuary model of the Old Testament. In our last study, we read in Exodus 25, verse 8, and that Jesus was speaking, He said, Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Apparently, God, Jesus, longs to be close to His people. As a matter of fact, we have kind of a parallel text to that in John chapter 14, and that's where I had you turn. John chapter 14, we're looking at verse 3. I want you to notice how how Jesus relates to his people in this verse. So this is John chapter 14. We're looking at verse 3. This is page, what did I say? 955. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Why? That where I am, there ye may be also. 
That's what Jesus wants. Jesus wants to be close to us. And that's why he said, let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell where you dwell. And so when we think of the sanctuary, we're supposed to see Jesus because everything about the sanctuary tells something about Jesus and the plan of salvation. The solution to sin is right there. And we're going to develop that more and more as we study the thing together. Now, in the book of Numbers, and I'll have you turn to page 119, in the book of Numbers, God commanded Moses and told Moses that they were to pitch their tents afar off. Now, that's um, the King James Version says the far off. We're going to read verses, uh, this is Numbers chapter 2. We're going to read verses 1 and 2, page 119. Notice what it says. If I was at the right place, I could read it to you. Numbers chapter 2. And we're reading verses 1 and 2. And the Lord spake to Moses and Aaron, saying, Every one of the children of Israel shall camp by his own standard, beside the emblems of his father's house. They shall camp some distance from the tabernacle of meeting. And so you have to try to get the picture. And You know, I left my pointer in my other suit coat in any case. When you're looking at this picture, do you see how far the tents are from the sanctuary? That was ordered by God. And so, on the, on the east side, the tents were a half a mile. As a matter of fact, that's, that's how far it was actually. Because if you study the Bible, you find out that God told them that it needed to be, that the closest tent needed to be 2,000 cubits from the sanctuary. And if you convert cubits, which is 18 inches approximately, if you convert 2,000 cubits, you're going to have three quarters of a kilometer or half a mile. And so on the south side, you would have half, the, the tents would be half a mile away. And on the north side, half a mile away in the west and east. Uh, and you know, This isn't the south side, by the way. This is the east side. <laughs> and that's the west side. Yeah, and that's the north side and that's the south side. And they're all half a mile away from the sanctuary. Now, not only that, between... The tents up there, which represents the world, by the way, between the tents and the sanctuary, the two first roads, the two first rows all around on all sides were the tents of the Levites. Now you want to ask, well, why in the world did he do it that way? Why didn't the Levites just have a block of space like everyone else had? But the reason for that is because God had sequestered the Levites to guard the sanctuary. And the, and the first rows of tents were all Levites and no one could get through there to go into that empty space. No one was allowed in that empty space. They were, it was guarded. And of course the question is, well if God yearns to be close to his people, then why did he ask that they be pitching their tents afar off? It seems to be a contradiction. It seems to be uh, a paradox there. Why would he do that? He wants them close, and then he tells them to pitch far away. Well, the reason for all that is because this is the plan of salvation, and God has a reason for everything that he does, and everything that he does and everything that he commands needs to be studied out so that we find out what the reason is. And the reason is this. God is holy. And we are sinners. Corrupted, defiled sinners. If you turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12, look at Hebrews chapter 12. This is page 1071. 
1071, Hebrews chapter 12. And this is a verse perhaps you're familiar with. Hebrews chapter 12, we're looking at verse 29 in Hebrews chapter 12. Notice what it says there. For God, for our God is a consuming fire. Do you know what that means? That means if you're full of sin and you approach to God too closely, you will be consumed. As a matter of fact, in another place in the Bible that says, no one can see God face to face and live. You know that, don't you? And the reason for that, of course, is that we are corrupted. We are defiled. We are full of sin. And God, to protect his people, said, let them make, let them put distance. And the distance between the tents and the, and the sanctuary is, is a great gulf fixed. It should be. By faith, we should be able to see that this is a great gulf fixed. By the way, those are Bible words. And it has to do with the parable of Lazarus and Abraham talking to each other across a great gulf fix. Well, sin has separated the people from God and there is no way to get to God. There is no way to get there without being destroyed, of course. Uh, Go to Numbers chapter 3. Numbers chapter 3. This is page 121 in Numbers chapter 3. It's still talking about the same thing. If I could find it. Numbers chapter 3, page 121. We're looking at verse 38 in Numbers chapter 3. Moreover, those who were to camp before the tabernacle on the east, before the tabernacle of meeting, were Moses, Aaron, and his sons, keeping charge of the sanctuary to meet the needs of the children of Israel. But... The outsider who came near was to be put to death. Now, what's an outsider? Well, it's the opposite of an insider. (laughs) And no one could become an insider. Right? Isn't that what it says? And anyone who came by who was an outsider, in other words, who was a stranger. If you had a King James Version, they would use the word stranger. Anyone who was a stranger could not enter that empty space. Many times, if you look at the depiction of the sanctuary, many, many depictions of the sanctuary have people strolling in this empty empty space around the sanctuary. Lovers, hand in hand, walking there, little kids playing with their dog in that empty space. That wasn't so. That wasn't so. That wasn't allowed. Because God is trying to teach us that God is holy and we are defiled and the two don't mix. They really, really don't. So now, who is considered a stranger? Well, let's look. Um, I think we've just read that it says that anyone that's not a Levite is not allowed there. Well, the thing actually goes broader than that. If you'll go with me to Ezekiel chapter 44. Ezekiel chapter 44. And that's page 774. Ezekiel 44. 774. And we're looking at verse 9 in Ezekiel. Thus saith the Lord God, no foreigner, that's the same as a stranger, that's the same as, what's the other word we used a few minutes ago? An outsider? Yeah. Thus saith the Lord God, no outsider, no stranger, no foreigner, uncircumcised in heart or 
or uncircumcised in flesh shall enter my sanctuary, including any foreigner, outsider, stranger, who is among the children of Israel. So it's even possible to be a stranger and be among the children of Israel. That's what it says there. Now, what does it mean to be uncircumcised in heart and flesh? Do you know the meaning of uncircumcision? You happen to know, don't you, that when, well, maybe you do, maybe you don't, it doesn't matter. When God was dealing with Abraham and Abraham was going to be the father of the faithful, Abraham was the father of the Hebrews, he instructed Abraham that all his children and all his descendants should be circumcised. Circumcision was a symbol. Do you know what this, what it symbolized? Circumcision was the cutting away of the flesh. Now, you, I don't know why in the world if the Lord would have us cut away the flesh, why were we created with the flesh? Why were we created that way? But that's not a problem the way we were created. God is only using this to teach the Israelites something, to teach us something. And God is trying to teach us that we cannot depend on the flesh. And he says, here's what I want you to do with the flesh. Cut it off and throw it away. It's useless anyway. This is what there's, do you know that this is the central theme of the whole Bible? Did you know that circumcision is part of the central theme of the whole Bible? Go with me to Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17, and it's page 683 in Jeremiah chapter 17. And this is the central theme in the whole Bible. You can read it many, many places. We're just going to look at these verses right here. And this is what circumcision is supposed to teach. Jeremiah 17, we're looking at verse 5, all the way to verse 9, actually. Jeremiah 17, page 683. Thus saith the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man and makes flesh his strength. Don't do it. That's what it says here. Whose heart departs from the Lord... For he shall be like a shrub in the desert and shall not see when good comes, but shall inherit the parched places of the wilderness in a salt land which is not inhabited. Ah, but the opposite of that is blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose hope is the Lord. For he shall be like a tree planted by the waters which spreads out its root by the river and will not fear when heat comes, but its leaf shall be green and will not be anxious in the year of drought, nor will cease from yielding fruit. And all of that is written, and we ask the question, why? Why can't we trust in the flesh? Why can't we trust man? Verse 9, The heart is deceitful above all things, and desperately wicked who can know it. Whose heart is this talking about? All of man's hearts. Do you know that your heart is deceptive? Have you ever been deceived by yourself? Do you know? And I won't have you turn there. I, I just want to tell you about the four nothings. In Galatians chapter, in Galatians chapter 6 verse 3, you can record that if you have a pen. Galatians chapter 6 verse 3, it says, If a man thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Do you know that that's the basis of all deception? If you put confidence in yourself, you're setting yourself up to be deceived. There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof is the ways of death. Proverbs 14, verse 12. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. That's uh, that's Jeremiah 10, verse 23. Lean not on thy own understanding. Throughout the whole Bible, the Lord is trying to help us to see that we are fallen, we are broken. 
We are perverted. We, are, you know, we are just sick, and we're we need His help. And so He says, "Cursed is the man that trusts in the man, in man that trusts that puts puts trust in in the flesh." That's what it says. Ah, but blessed is the man that trusts in God. That's where our faith should be, and God will guide us, and God will bless us. And so, what is a man? Nothing. That's what it says. If a man thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Jesus says in John 15 verse 5, what does he say? Without me you can do what? Nothing. And he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 verse 2, we know, you know nothing as you ought to know it. Do you know anything? Well, yes, you know something. You know a lot of things. But do you know it as you ought to know it? No. You don't know it as you ought to know it. We don't know anything as we ought to know it. Do you think there's not a lot more to know about the thing you know best already? Uh, there's no end. It's infinite. Yeah. And John the Baptist in John chapter 3 verse 27 said, A man can receive nothing except it's given him from heaven. So we don't have anything unless God gives it to us. We can't do anything unless God helps us to do it. We don't know anything. As we ought to know it, and we are nothing. Now, is that enough nothing to make you humble this evening? Well, I hope so, because the whole Bible is trying to teach us that we are cursed if we trust in the flesh. And circumcision was just a symbol in an attempt by God to teach us that very thing. Throw away the flesh. Put your faith in God. Throw away mortality. Put your faith in infinite, in infinity, if I can put it that way when we're thinking about God. Go with me to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. And we're looking at verse 63, and that's page 945. 945, John 6, and verse 63. It is the Spirit that gives life. Now notice, the flesh profits how much? There's another nothing. It is the Spirit that gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak unto you, they are Spirit and they are life. Throw away the flesh. Receive the Spirit. Zechariah chapter 4 says, Not by might, nor by power, but what? By my Spirit, saith the Lord. So that's the, that's the story in the whole Bible. That's the central theme of the whole Bible. Put your faith in God. Don't put your faith in yourself. You will be deceived. Now, in the days of Jesus, of course, the Jews had lost sight of this. They had lost sight of the symbolism of circumcision, and they attributed merit to the, to the act of circumcision itself. But there's no merit in the act of circumcision. It, all that it was was a symbol, and they just didn't connect the two. They had lost spirituality. They were thinking like pagans. They were thinking like heathens. They made idols of things that were not meant to be idols. They were meant to be symbols. And so, they figured if they were circumcised, they were good with God. Have you ever met people who have ideas like that? You know? If I could speak in tongues, I would be good with God. Well, that isn't so. You know? If I can just utter the right words, I accept Jesus as my personal Savior, I'm good with God because I've uttered those words. Well, no. <laughs> Christianity is much deeper than that, isn't it? 
Turn with me to Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. And this is page 1000 in Romans chapter 2. And we're looking at verses 28 and 29. Romans chapter 2. 28 and 29. For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward of the, in the flesh. But he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but from God. And so God right here is reaching into your heart. And he says, I want you to have a heart experience with me. Not a mechanical religion. I don't want you to do this and that and this and that and this and that. All ceremonies, all rituals that make you look religious. That doesn't prove anything. I want your heart. There are verses like that in the in the book of Proverbs. Uh, uh, you probably know. So do you see it? It's really not enough to be religious. It isn't enough to belong to a church. It isn't enough if you keep all the commandments even. It isn't enough if you are circumcised. It isn't enough to be born in a Christian family. Mechanical religion is worth nothing. As a matter of fact, it's less than nothing because it's a deception that the devil can use and the devil uses it all the time. So, how is it with you? Do you know that being religious is not enough? Do you know that belonging to the church is not enough to be saved? Oh, I hope you know that. That's not what God wants. Oh, He has a church. He wants us to go to church. He wants us to be baptized. He wants us to pay tithe. He wants us to do those things which He's asked us to do. But this is not what's going to bring salvation to our hearts. He wants us to walk with Him hand in hand. That's what we want to do. I'll have you turn with me now to Luke chapter 15. 925, this is page 925 in Luke chapter 15. This is where we find the parable of the prodigal son. The parable of the prodigal son starts in verse 11. We're not going to go to verse 11. but And I hope you remember, I hope you know the story of the parable in the parable of the prodigal son. A certain man had two sons, right? One was older and one was younger. That's what happens almost in every family, unless you have twins. And the younger one wanted his inheritance and he got his inheritance and he went out and he blew it on wine, women and song. Well, he ran into hard times after a while and he came back to his father and his father received him with open arms, a big hug and a kiss and put a robe on him and ring on his finger and shoes on his feet. It's the elder brother now we want to look at who was just not happy. The elder brother was in the field. By the way, he was in the mission field. If you don't mind, he never left his father, which represents God. He never left the church. He was always in God's employ. You understand. So he's in the field in verse 25 it says. And when he comes out of the field, he comes near the house which represents the church and he heard music and singing and he thought to himself, something's wrong. I don't know why he would think something's wrong when there's music coming out of the church. If there's any place in the world that should be happy, it should be in the church, don't you think? Everywhere else there's people who are lost and suffering and dying and they've got disease and they've got everything else. That, that's And there's all kinds of tragedy and there's crime and there's there, there's no end to what's happening in the world. But there's one place where we could find a refuge, where we should find a refuge. And that's in the church of God. And if there's anywhere we can be happy, that's where we should be happy. That's where there should be music and singing and dancing. It said dancing in there. Yeah. But the 
The elder brother comes out of the field and he has to ask the servant, what in the world's going on? I've never heard music come out of the church before. It must have been a dead church. Anyway, I don't know. And he's confused in any case. And the servant says, your brother's come home. And that's why everyone's so happy, you see. But he isn't happy. No, he's all upset because his brother has come home. So the father comes out to meet the elder brother. He comes out to entreat him, it says in verse 28. Do you know that God came down to entreat Cain when Cain killed Abel? Do you know that God came down to entreat Adam and Eve when they sinned, eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Do you know that God will come down and talk to you? If you turn your back on Him or if you do something really dumb, He'll come down and He'll he'll deal with you. He will bring conviction. He will bring comfort. He will try to draw you back. This is why He always done that. So the father in the parable comes to talk to his elder brother. It isn't to chastise him or to castigate him. It's to draw him. Come, come, rejoice with us. Yeah. I want you to notice what the elder brother says to his father in verse 29. We're in... Luke 15, we're looking at verse 29. So he answered and said to his father, Look, these many years do I have I, I have been serving you. I never transgressed your commandments at any time. Now, isn't that a saying? Isn't that wonderful? Here's one young man who has never broken the commandments. Are you able to say that? May I see your hands? Not one hand. Well, he was special, wasn't he? He had never broken the commandments. And yet, in spite of saying, I have never broken the commandments, there was something that was just not quite right with his Christian experience. If you look at verse 28, but he was, what? Why would he be angry? If your brother leaves the church, would you be, would, wouldn't you be worried? Wouldn't you send him a Bible? Wouldn't you send him a track? Wouldn't you call him on the phone and make an appeal to his heart? Wouldn't you try to reason with him? Wouldn't you try to get him back? And if he comes back, you're angry? No, that doesn't make sense. There is n- it just doesn't make sense except that the elder brother's experience is not a Christian experience. It really, really isn't. And there's something that actually is more definitive here that shows us that he's not having a Christian experience. If you look back at verse 29, I want you to see the last half of verse 29. Now put on your spiritual cap here because it's not easy to see unless I point it out. I want you to see this. Verse 29, the part we didn't read in the verse. This is still the young, the elder brother's argument. And yet, you never gave me a goat, a young goat, that I may, might make merry with my friends. Now, in the Bible, the kid, the goat, the lamb, the bullock, what does what do they represent? Jesus. Jesus and the atoning sacrifice. Do you know what he was saying here? He is saying, I keep all the commandments and yet the merits of the atoning sacrifice were never applied to me. Now, I would complain too, wouldn't you? If I kept all the commandments, you would think I would be candidate for heaven, candidate number one for heaven. Because nobody else can do it. He keeps all the commandments, and yet the merits of the atoning sacrifice was never applied in his case. Never. Is it possible, do you think, to keep all the commandments and not be saved? What do you think? Yes. Of course, I think there's going to be a lot of people terribly disappointed in the end because they thought they did really well externally. They were just such nice Christians. 
Surely they're going to be in heaven. And so they went to their graves, perhaps rejoicing in the Lord because they thought they were saved. Do you think there be people disappointed at the being born, being resurrected at the wrong resurrection? Ooh, I'll tell you what. The problem with the elder brother here, of course, is that he does not understand that being a church member is not enough. He doesn't understand, he doesn't realize that it isn't enough to be religious. I want to share with you three passages of Scripture. How do you like that? I want to share with you three passages of Scripture that show that it's not enough to be religious. Turn with me to James chapter 1. James chapter 1, this is page 1073 in James chapter 1. And we're looking at verse 26, James 1 verse 26. Now sometimes I stumble on my words here in reading this Bible because my Bible is King James. I've never had any other Bible. And so I, 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 I read these verses and I'm not seeing them. And then I see the words and I stumble because they don't say exactly the same thing as my Bible. But I want to use this Bible so I can I can give you a page number. Okay, we're in James chapter 1 and we're looking at verse 26. If anyone among you thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his own heart, this one's religion is what? Useless. Now here's an individual who is religious. He seems to be religious. He thinks himself religious. This is what the prodigal son, the, 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 the elder brother in the parable of the prodigal son was like. He, he was sure of his religion. He kept all the commandments of God. And then when his brother comes out, comes home, what is it that came out of his mouth? Well, it wasn't pretty. What did Jesus say? Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth what? And that's what he found in his heart. And it proved him to be not a true Christian. Another passage of scripture. This is 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy chapter 3. And um, if you look at verse 1, it's talking about the last days, at least in the King James Version it is. This is James, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is page 1057. Sorry, I didn't give you the page here. 1057. Second Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 1 and then we're going to skip to verse 5. But know this. No, we're going to look at verse 1 and 2. Then we're going to skip to verse 5. But know this, that in the last days, we're talking about the last days here, perilous times shall come. Brothers and sisters, I'll tell you what, if we're not in perilous times, we're going to be very soon. There's no doubt in my mind. And then, and then Paul goes on to describe what people will be like in the last days. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy. And he goes on to describe what people will be like in the last days. And we go all the way to verse 5 now because that's the point we want to make is in verse 5. He says, these people, they have a form of godliness, but denying its power from such people turn away. What's wrong with these people? They have the trappings of religion. They are, they have all the ceremonies. They have all the rituals. They externally, they look like Christians. But there's one thing missing, and that's the power of Christ in their lives. Do you know that the power is in the Word of God? He spake and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast. And if we receive the power of God into our lives, we will be receiving power. That's what the Bible says. The words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. 
and they're full of power. And so here we find the group of Christians here. They have the, what does it say? Verse 5. They have the form of godliness, but they have no power. And so the elder brother found himself like that. Ceremonial, ritualistic, but no real Christian power. Okay, Revelation chapter 3, that's the third passage. Revelation chapter 3, I don't have to give you a page number. If you don't know it's the last book in the Bible, I'm telling you now. It's the last book in the Bible. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation is a book of prophecy. It's written almost entirely in symbols. If you read the number 7 in the book of Revelation, what do you know? What is the symbolism of number 7? Perfection and completeness. And so there are seven everything in in the book of Revelation. Seven stars and seven, seven candlesticks and seven plagues and seven trumpets and seven churches and seven spirits and seven eyes and on and on and on. And it all has to do with a complete, a perfect number, a perfect, just the whole thing. So when we look at the seven churches, then we're looking at the whole Christian history. From the time it was founded till the time until Jesus comes, that's the history of Christianity. And if we go to the last church of the seven, then obviously we're going to the last days, right? And that's what we're going to do. We are in Revelation chapter 3. We're looking at verse 15. I know your works, Jesus says. He's called the true witness here. I know your works, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. The Lord would like to have us on fire. And if we're not on fire, he would rather we'd be frozen. Because when you're frozen, you know it. Have you ever been cold? Have you ever been cold tonight? (laughs) Yeah, it's cold outside, isn't it? Yeah. And you know it when you're outside because it's cold. But here we have a group of people who are not on fire and they're not cold. They're just perfectly lukewarm. I know your works that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish you were cold or hot. So then because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I will vomit you out of my mouth. Do you know that Christianity in the last days makes Jesus sick? Isn't that an indictment against Christianity today? How much power do we see in Christianity today? How much power do you see in your own life? Jesus says, you make me sick. Do you know why? Because you're neither hot nor cold. you got one foot in the world and you got one foot in the church. You don't want to leave the church because you don't want to be lost. But oh, the world has so many attractions and so many toys and so many things we want to do and see and touch and play with. (coughs) We're lukewarm. We're not on fire. That's what it's saying. Now, what's the problem? I said all that, of course. we got to come to the problem. The problem is found in verse 17. So, we're in Revelation chapter 3. We're looking at verse 17. Here's the problem. Here's why we are hot. We're not hot and we're not cold. Here's why we are lukewarm. Verse 17. Because you say, I am rich. Spiritually rich. You understand? Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Do you know that the worst thing you can experience is not to feel your need? From the soul that feels his need, nothing is withheld. Nothing is withheld. My God shall supply all your needs. Philippians chapter 4 verse 19. My God shall supply all your needs. But you've got to feel your need. Otherwise you'll never apply at the bank for the money that you need. You'll never apply from Jesus for the help that you're going to need. And so here's a group of people, this is Christians in the last day, they say they are rich and increased with good and need of nothing. They feel no need. 
Okay, verse 17. And they do not know, no, you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. So, question for you. Oh, don't answer this question because it's a trick question. Yeah. Are you spiritually rich or are you spiritually poor? Which one is it? Don't answer it. Supposing you're walking downtown America and you meet a finely dressed gentleman on the street corner in downtown America and he happens to be a, a Southern Baptist. Fine gentleman, fine people. I like them very much. And they ask a very pertinent question. They always ask the same question. Does anyone know the questions they ask? Are you saved? That's what they ask. And it's a great question to ask. As a matter of fact, we ought to be asking that question to ourselves all the time. Are you saved? What would you say if you came to downtown America and, and a Southern Baptist would ask you, are you saved? What would you say to the man? Yeah. I'm in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ. Well, here's the question. If you are saved, if you are in a saving relationship with Jesus Christ, then are you spiritually rich or spiritually poor? Don't answer it. Don't answer it. You'll get in trouble. You see, we have the idea that the verse says that the lost are poor, blind, and naked spiritually and that the saved are not. But that's not what the verse says. If you look at the verse very carefully, you'll find out that the verse says that the lost don't know that they are poor, blind, and naked and the saved know it. The only difference between the saved and the lost, the only difference between being saved and being lost, is that the saved feel their need of Jesus constantly, constantly, constantly. If you don't feel your need of help from God, well, you wouldn't be here probably. And I'm glad you're here. That says something. But if you don't feel any need of help from God, if you don't feel any desire, any longing to know Jesus and to be helped by Him, you are in dire trouble. In dire trouble. Oh, somebody will say, but I've been a Christian for 50 years and I keep all the commandments of God. <laughs> really? Externally, you're doing great, right? And so because externally you're doing great, you think that will get you into the kingdom of heaven? No, no. It's from the soul that feels his need that nothing is withheld. My God shall supply what? All your need. Do you have a need? If you don't have a need, you're satisfied. And one of the most dangerous things we can have as an experience in Christianity is to be satisfied that we're doing so well. Friends, we're not doing so well. Have you looked in the mirror? I mean, spiritual mirror? Have you looked at the law of God? <laughs> no. If we look there... We would, we would see something. As a matter of fact, let's look at it a little bit. Turn with me. We're going to look at uh, the word poor. Poor, blind, and naked. Spiritually poor. Let's look at the word poor now. This is in Matthew chapter 5. And this is page 852 in Matthew chapter 5. This is in the Beatitudes. This is a great sermon on the mount. The greatest sermon Jesus ever preached. And this is the very first Beatitude we're going to look at in Matthew chapter 5. This is... Verse 3. Very, very interesting. I, at least I find it interesting. Matthew 5, verse 3, page 852. Blessed, excuse me, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. 
I've never been able to, I for many, many years could not understand this verse. I grew up in a home where my father knew one verse in the whole Bible. And it was this verse, only it came out of Luke, and it, Luke it just says very, very plainly, very straightly, it just says, Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That's the one verse he knew in the Bible, and he would repeat it all the time, because he was what? Poor. He was poor. He had eight children and a Volkswagen bug. Nobody could go, I mean, the whole family couldn't go anywhere all at the same time ever. You know, that's poverty. <laughs> well, it would be poverty today for sure. Yeah. And so he used to recite this verse, but I used to scratch my head. Even when I was a little boy, I used to scratch my head. It's like, duh, just because you're poor, you're going to be in heaven. That doesn't make any sense. Yeah. But not only that, you know, I would think in terms of seeing Jesus coming down from heaven and he comes down to this world and he looks the whole world over. And what's he looking for? He's looking for people who are spiritually rich. And if he finds one, he says... Blessed are they who are spiritually rich, for theirs is the kingdom of God. But he never said that. Do you know why he never said that? Because there aren't any. There aren't any spiritually rich people. And so he says the opposite. Blessed are they who feel their spiritual poverty, for theirs is the kingdom of God. If you don't feel your spiritual poverty, you're in trouble. We need to know it. Let's look at the word blind now. You know, poor, blind, and naked. Go to John chapter 9. We're looking at John chapter 9. Let me see here if I can give you a page number. It is 950 in John chapter 9. John chapter 9. We're going to go to verse 39 in John chapter 9. Jesus said, For judgment I have come into this world that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may be made blind. So who did Jesus come for? The blind or the seeing? The blind. So who are you? Can you see or are you blind? Well, you'd better be blind. (laughs) You'd better be blind. Now, there were people there when Jesus was saying these things, and they were all insulted. They were Pharisees and they were scribes, and they hear Jesus saying that if, if you... If you think you can see, you're in trouble. And they're like, wait a minute. We've been to seminary. We've been to the schools of the prophets. We've been to the rabbinical schools. We are the guides to the blind. What are you trying to tell us? And they're insulted. Now watch what Jesus says. Well, let's look at verse 40. And then we'll go to verse 41. And some of the Pharisees who were with him heard these words and said to him, Are we blind also? I mean, are you telling us that we're blind? Watch what he says. Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But now you say we see, therefore your sin remains. Do you see? Say no. No. (laughs) Yeah. All that Jesus is trying to teach here is that we need guidance from Him, from heaven, all the time. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. There is a way that seems right, but the end thereof is the way of what? Death. And we need to get that down in our hearts. Cursed is the man that trusts in man. Blessed is the man that trusts in the Lord. That's what it says. And the only difference between the lost and the saved is that the saved feel their need of help from God. And that's the thing that will save you. Of course, it's the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ that saves us. But it's because we feel our need of it. We feel our need of it. Let me tell you a story. 
I don't know where to start exactly. Um, I worked in the mines for nine years. And then I began reading the Bible and I quit working in the mines. And I went to a little missionary training school for two years. And on the third year, they made me the president. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> it's ridiculous. But hey, listen, they took Joseph out of the dungeon and they made him governor of a whole country. So God can do whatever he wants to do. And that's what he did. He took me out of the mines, kind of a dungeon, kind of a pit anyway. And he, he brought me and made me president of a little self-supporting school, a little, a little missionary training school there in northern Ontario. Well, the man responsible for doing that, his name was Warren Wilson, and he lived in Chattanooga. Well, he lived in Wildwood, just eight miles from Chattanooga, and uh, he felt responsible. And he wanted to try to nurture me somehow. But you know, that's in the 1970s. Do you know there were no cell phones in the 1970s? Some of you weren't born then, of course. You can't know there was no cell phones then. Yeah, there was no cell phones and there was no computers and there was no email and there was no nothing actually. There was landlines. And every time somebody took up the landline and said hello and they said this is long distance, that was always the first words they said, you know, this is long distance and that means run like mad, get somebody to answer this quickly because it's costing an arm and a leg. That's how it was in those days. Well, the only way he had to talk to me was telephone. And so he would call me up sometimes and he says, here, I've got it all figured out. I want you to make your way to New Hampshire. There's going to be a convention there. And I, I've already set it up for you to speak. And then after you speak, after the convention, there's going to be a board meeting and you're going to get a training that way. And he used to do that. He'd call me to go to Massachusetts. He'd call me to go to New Hampshire. He'd call me to go to British Columbia. He'd call me to go all over the place. Well, in 1980, this is before I ever went to British Columbia, actually. In 1980... He calls me up and he says, I need you to go to a little place called Eden Valley in Colorado. I've already set it up. You're going to be speaking there and all the rest. And I'm like, no way. I'm not going to Colorado. I hadn't traveled that much in my life. And the idea of jumping in my car in northern Ontario and driving all the way to Colorado, today I would think nothing of it. But in those days, it was like a huge undertaking. It was a trip. Anyway, I didn't want to do it. But he convinced me to do it. He really, really did. So, one day I left early in the morning. I drove 14 hours. I ended up in southern Michigan, a little place called Oak Haven in Pullman, Michigan. They gave me a place to sleep. And in the morning, I woke up to singing. There was a chapel just below my room. And so I got up. I got dressed. I went down to the little chapel. I sat among the people. And there was a young black man speaking. I don't remember anything of the sermon except this. He said, Seventh-day Adventists are self-righteous. That's what he said. And I'm sitting there and thinking, you know, I'm only three years old as a Christian. And I'm thinking, what is he saying? How can he say that? Seventh-day Adventist surely cannot be self-righteous. I didn't understand. I just didn't understand. You know what self-righteousness is. By the way, Seventh-day Adventists are self-righteous. Did you know that? They may be the most self-righteous people in the world. Oh, yeah. We don't need to deny this thing. Self-righteousness is the problem. Self-righteousness is everybody's problem. Self-righteousness is a Baptist problem. It's a Catholic problem. And it's a Pentecostal problem. It's everybody's problem. Self-righteousness only says that we put confidence in ourselves rather than putting faith in God. That's what self-righteousness is. And what he was saying was true, but I didn't understand. So here I am sitting in the chairs there among the people, and I sent a prayer up to the, to the Lord in heaven. I said, Lord, am I self-righteous? And God answered. Now, I can't tell you how he answered. You know, he, he, a thought came to my mind. I didn't originate the thought I thought. 
and I am pretty sure still. And so the Lord was speaking to me and he said, yes, you are self-righteous. And I just couldn't, couldn't accept it. I just couldn't grasp it. And so he continued to talk to me. He says, what's your biggest complaint? And I said, my biggest complaint is I don't have enough time for my Bible. I don't have enough time for for my devotions, for prayer and all of these things. And, and I just wish I had more time. And God said, that proves that you are self-righteous. Do you understand how that proves that you're self-righteous? He continued to talk to me. He said, if for one minute you could feel the weight of the responsibilities I've put on your shoulders. If for one minute you could feel your responsibility as the husband of a wife, as the father of three children, as the leader in an institution, as the head elder in a church, as a witness in the community. If for one minute you could feel your responsibilities, you could do nothing but pray. Don't tell me you don't have time to pray. The only reason you don't have time to pray is that you go off to tackle all of these problems in your own strength. Have you ever complained that you don't have enough time for your Bible? That you don't have enough time for your devotions? That you don't have enough time to pray? You are self-righteous. Sorry. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, we are self-righteous. If we were not self-righteous, we would be on our knees all the time. We would be pleading with God for help. And what could he do if this people, if this group in this room would all be prayerful like that, like Jesus was? Jesus, who was absolutely perfect, he wasn't self-righteous. He wouldn't do anything except he spent all night in prayer. What in the world? He didn't need that. Oh, he did need that. You know? And we need it far more than he ever needed it. Yeah. We are self-righteous. Well, now, let's go back to the sanctuary. That's what we started out with. So now, how did the sinner, I wish I had my pointer, how did the sinner go from the tents up there, which represents the world, how did they finally get to the sanctuary? How did they get to God? That's the question. They're headed from the world to heaven. You understand. How did they get there being sinners? Well, friends, there was only one way to get there. Do you know what it is? The Lamb. That's the only way they could step into that space that what I call the great gulf fixed. There is no other way. If they did not have a sacrificial lamb with them, they couldn't get there. Mary had a little lamb. His heart was pure as gold. And if a sinner needed help, he offered grace untold. I made that up. <laughs> so the sinner starts walking with his lamb coming from there. He goes by the Levites. The Levites can see he's got a lamb. He's got his ticket. Jesus is the ticket, by the way. No man comes to the Father but by me. He's the ticket. So, he makes his way, he goes to the gate down there, and a priest meets him at the gate. What does the gate represent? Jesus. Yeah. Go to, go to John chapter 4, John chapter 10. We're in John chapter 9, so I don't even have to turn the page. This is page 950. Look at John chapter 10, we're looking at verse 1. And then we're going to look at verse 9, page 950. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. Now, he's talking about heaven when he talks about the sheepfold. Now, look at verse 9. Jesus speaking says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. 
and I will go in, and and we'll go in and out and find pasture. Jesus is the gate. So the man comes with his lamb. The lamb represents Jesus. The gate represents Jesus. He's met at the gate by the priest. Who does the priest represent? Jesus. Jesus. Hebrews chapter 4. Page 1064. Hebrews chapter 4. 1064. And we're looking at the last uh, three verses, I think. Uh, the last four verses in Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. So Jesus is the great high priest. For we do not have an high priest who cannot be sympathized with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Do you want help? Listen, we need help. We need help. That's the point of the whole sermon. From the soul that feels his need. Nothing is withheld. Come to him. That's what he says. And so when we come with the lamb, represents Jesus. We come to the door, represents him. We can't go into heaven except through the door. And then a priest meets us there. The priest takes us, he, he leads us and the Lamb all the way to the altar of burnt offering. This is what this is here, the altar. What does that represent? It represents the cross of Calvary. And when the, the priest instructs the man that has a Lamb, he says, put your hands on the head of the Lamb and press firmly. Make a good connection because you're going to be doing a transfer now. And he says, confess your sins on the head of the Lamb. And that's what happens. The man confesses his sins and the sins go onto the lamb, of course. And what happens to the lamb? Yeah. See, when the man confesses his sins, he transfers his sins, he transfers his guilt, and he transfers his consequences all to the lamb. Then the priest gives the man a, a knife and he says, take the lamb's life. And he kills the lamb. By the way, the man had to do it. Do you know why? Because it's our sins that killed Jesus. It's our sins that killed Jesus. And so the lamb dies and the sinner walks free. In Pilgrim's Progress, anybody hear of the book Pilgrim's Progress? Have you read the book Pilgrim's Progress? It's amazing. I love it. I love it. My kids... My, I bought my son a Pilgrim's Progress when he was eight years old. I think he read it ten times. It was a children's version, of course, but he just read it and read it and read it and read it. It was just amazing to him. And my son, to this day, is still a Christian, and he's the head of a institution in Africa. He's a missionary over there. Yeah, so, in the book Pilgrim's Progress, there's a man named Christian. Isn't that, isn't that good? He leaves the city of destruction and he's headed towards, of course, the celestial city. He's carrying on his back a heavy load. Do you remember how he got the heavy load? Do you remember? Yes, Missy? 
from reading the Bible. That's exactly right. Now, wait a minute. That don't make no sense. It seems to me if we read the Bible that our loads would be taken away. Didn't Jesus say, come unto me and I'll give you rest? How is it that in reading the Bible he got a heavy load? Because, friends, the closer you come to Jesus, the more faulty you appear in your own eyes. You can't come close to Jesus and not see the contrast, how good He is and how bad we are. And when you read the Bible, the Bible, Jesus is the Word, the Word is Jesus. And so as Christian was reading the Bible, he began to see Jesus and he began to see himself and conviction came upon him and the load of sin got bigger and bigger and bigger by reading the Bible. Isn't that amazing? Yeah. Some people think they're going to feel good by reading the Bible. Well, I feel good. I like reading the Bible. I read it all the time, as a matter of fact. Yeah. But boy, when I come in contact with Jesus, I see the difference. Anyway, he's carrying this big load. And finally, he spies a little wicked gate and he heads for it. On his way to the wicked gates, of course, he reaches a slough of despond. There's a lot of people in Christianity today who fall into despondency trying to be Christians. And that's what was happening to him. And there was a man called Evangelist that came by. I don't know if in the story we are told what the Evangelist had to say. But whatever it was, it was good because it pulled him out of despondency. And so he keeps on going and pretty soon he meets Mr. Worldly Wise Man. Mr. Worldly Wise Man, he really has a plan. He says, if you want to get rid of that burden on your back, you need to climb Mount Sinai. And Christian thinks, well, that's an idea. I should be keeping the law. I should be keeping all the commandments. So he heads up Mount Sinai. But the higher he gets, the more it appears like the mountain is actually overhung like this. There's no way he can climb, climb Mount Sinai to be saved. It just doesn't work. So he turns around, goes back down. Finally, he finds the gate. And he goes through the gate. But you know, he found no relief by going through the gate. It was only uh, when on a hill far away, he saw... An old rugged cross. This is a quote, direct quote from Pilgrim's Progress. Just as Christian came up to the cross, his burden was loosed from off his shoulders, fell from his back, and began to tumble down the hill. And so it continued to do till it came to the mouth of the sepulchre. There it fell in, and I saw it no more. Why did he see it no more? Because Jesus had taken the load to the grave with him, And it stayed there. That's the story that we find there. Does that mean that a Christian will never sin again? Does that mean that after an Israelite went through this, that he never sinned again? Oh, no, no, friends. Listen. It does mean, however, that we know where to go. If you go with me in 1 John chapter 2, we're almost done. We're almost done. 1 John chapter 2. I think that's the last verse we're going to look at tonight. 1 John chapter 2, page 1082, 1082. John chapter 2, we're looking at verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. God does not want us to sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Wow. Do you know that if you sin... Jesus will go to battle for you. Try to get that in your mind. The lamb goes to battle the dragon for you. Does that make any sense? But the lamb will win. That's how it is. Take the lamb to the cross. Take the lamb to the cross. There's a tragedy 
in knowing where to go and not going there. How many of you have ever heard of Ernest Hemingway? Yes, most people have heard of Ernest Hemingway. He knew where to go, but he never went there. Ernest Hemingway was born in 1899. He was raised in a very religious home. Both his parents were God-fearing Christians. However, when he became a man, he turned his back on his parents' religion and he never went back, actually. When he returned from World War I, he wrote his first novel. It was called The Sun Also Rises and that was published in 1926. And the book reflected a lot of the book of Ecclesiastes. And so it reflected his background and his upbringing. He had been brought up as a Christian and he knew the Bible and that first book he wrote had a lot of Christianity in it. After a while, however, Ernest Hemingway abandoned himself to a life of debauchery with men and women both. He went to great depressions and more often than not he was found in the gutter drunk as a skunk and he had, he had a terrible time of it. In 1952, he received the Nobel Prize for Literature for a book that he wrote called The Old Man and the Sea. The Old Man and the Sea was about an old fisherman well, a fisherman grown old in any case, and the younger fishermen were taunting him with the idea that he was a has-been. To get away from all of these people, the old fisherman went fishing. Now, to his luck, he caught the biggest swordfish he'd ever caught in his life. And here he thought was, here's my chance to prove my worth. That's what he thought. And so he wrestled with the fish for hours and hours and days and days. And he got to the point of exhaustion. But when he got to the point of exhaustion, the fish died. The fish was fighting for his life and the man was fighting for his dignity. Ha, 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 he thought, I have won. And now he was going to show those young upstarts what it means to be a fisherman. The only problem was the fish was too big for the boat. So all that he could do was tie the fish to the boat and start rowing towards shore to get the, the fish in. But in the meantime came sharks and they began to tear at pieces of the fish little by little. And he began to fight with them. He fought with them with oars and he fought with them with whatever he had, a knife and sticks, no matter what, to no avail. By the time he got to shore, all that was left was a skeleton. Who would believe him now? How would he regain his dignity now? Exhausted, he stepped up on land and collapsed in the sand and slumped in a terrible depression, his great victory ended in defeat. Do you know that that was a picture of Ernest Hemingway's own life? One of the greatest writer of the centuries, of that, of that century, with a Nobel Prize to boot. At 62 years old, he took a rifle and he took his own life. Like the prodigal son, Ernest Hemingway turned his back on the Heavenly Father. Like the prodigal son, he knew his way back. But unlike the prodigal son, he didn't go back. Listen, sin does not only separate us from God. If sin only separated us from God, that would be bad enough. But sin does not only separate us from God. Sin also destroys our desire and capacity to know Him. How would you like your desire destroyed? Have you ever met people who have absolutely no desire? No capacity to know Him? This is life eternal to know Him. Isn't it? Yeah. Mary had a little lamb. His heart will, will never falter. 
If we want a place above, we'll meet him at the altar. True? Are you willing? Is heaven worth it? Is there anything in this world that outshines what we will have in heaven? Well, I understand we can't see heaven. But I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure that there's a God above who has created for us something that's going to eclipse anything we can have in this world. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.